chapter 4, we're going to finish up uh, this section here today. James chapter 4. You know, we've been working our way through the book of James. James is addressing the topic of faith and how faith is applied to different aspects of each of our lives. And we have been this past week and this week we're looking at James chapter four uh, using the title how to handle conflict, how to handle conflict. I won't um, spend much time reviewing all that we have looked at in verses one through five. Uh, But let us start reading at verse one. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us another opportunity to come into your presence. We pray, God, that you would help us as we have been praying throughout this book, not to just make faith claims to say we believe something, but I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have consistency in our lives with what we say we believe. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our hearts, especially in the area of of conflicts that we have. Help us not to look at the other person first, but help us to look at ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that as we examine ourselves, I pray that you would help us to deal with the desire for pleasure, whatever that may be, in our own hearts so that we can end at least the conflict on our side. And as you have said, as Paul has said, to live peacefully with all men as much as pertains to us. We thank you now for all these things in Jesus name. Amen. As uh, we discussed last week. Looking at James chapter four, oftentimes when it comes to the issue of conflict, we immediately look at the other person instead of looking at ourselves. James begins this text by saying that wars and fights among us, they are the result of an internal war. The reason that we are warring and fighting with each other is because there is a war that is raging inside of each one of us. We are looking for some form of desire for pleasure. That is what we're after in each conflict. And because we cannot control our own emotions and the things going on inside of us, it ends up producing conflict with other people. James tells us not only is this conflict involving other people, verses 1 through 3, but he also tells us that even though we don't think so, 
the way we treat others is the same way that we treat God. And so therefore, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses, showing that the same lust, the same pleasure that brings us into conflict with each other is the same lust for pleasure or friendship with the world that brings us into hostility with God. Again, I'm not going to go back over all of those different things, but uh, we ended this by saying that when we are in conflict with one another and when we are at odds with God, oftentimes we think that we must do something in order to make the change. And this is where we will pick up today, starting at verse 6. Now, in 2009, Disney released the hit movie, The Princess and the Frog. All right. And if you don't have young children, right, you, you probably have not seen <laughs> this, this movie. Um, but I have seen it too many times uh, to <laughs> too many times to count. Right. <laughs> it was a, a big deal when they released it because this was the uh, first Disney movie that featured an African-American princess. The movie was about a waitress named Tiana who wanted to <laughs> it was a, a waitress named Tiana that wanted to open a restaurant on the river in New Orleans. And it was also about a prince named Naveen who both of them together were turned into frogs because of voodoo. Now they set off on this journey, right, traveling through the bayou, right, and most of you all can hear the song, going down the bayou, right, okay, right. Um, so they, they, they're traveling through the bayou uh, because they were told that if they could get to this voodoo princess named Mama Odie, <laughs> that, <laughs> that she could help them to become human again. Now, when they meet Mama Odie, of course, she begins to sing a song, okay? <laughs> and so she sings this song that takes her three minutes to sing, okay, called Dig a Little Deeper. And at the end of the song, she asks Tiana if she now understands what she needs to do. And Tiana responds, Yes, I do, Mama Odie. I need to dig a little deeper and work even harder to get my restaurant. And then everybody like, oh. like she didn't get it. She, she completely missed the entire point that Mama Odie was trying to tell her. She believed that if she worked hard enough, she could in some way change her own life or her own circumstances. Now, how does this relate to what James is telling us in James chapter 4, starting at verse 6? I believe it relates because many of us as Christians have developed the same type of mindset. When we come to passages such as James chapter 4 that confront us over our lust and our greed and our callousness towards God, we often experience guilt and conviction. And we respond by making a resolve to change. And so just like our New Year's resolutions, our resolves to change <laughs> probably don't last very long. Right. <laughs> we make resolves to change. We make promises to God that we will do better or to say it like Princess Tiana. We determine to dig a little deeper and work even harder just to be good. No question. If by an act of your willpower, you could change your own behavior wouldn't you have already done it? If you could just choose to change or be different, you would have already done that by now. And yet we struggle with the same lust, the same greed, 
in the same sins year after year after year. And we make the same promises year after year after year. And we beat ourselves up for failing year after year after year. You see, in pride, we subconsciously believe that if we have gotten ourselves into this mess, we can get ourselves out, right? I made the choice to get into it. I can make a choice to get out. Arrogantly, we believe that in our we believe in our own human abilities. We believe that we are a match for the sinful desires of our own heart that is at war within us. And we believe that we can choose at any time to drop the sin that we have chosen to engage in. The first thing that we must realize is that doesn't fit with our experience. It doesn't fit with our experience because, again, if, if we could change ourselves, we would have already done it. And second, that does not match what the Bible says about sin and sinners. Now, I want you to turn with me really quickly to the book of Romans. So we can see what the Bible says about sin and what it says about us as sinners. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Is everyone there? All right, you got 10 seconds. Romans 6. I want to read just two verses. I want us to read verses 15 and 16. Listen to what Paul says about sin. We all know that uh, Paul writes the book of Romans in sections, okay? Verses 1, 2, and 3, he talks about how we're all condemned uh, by our sin before God. Starting at chapter 3, verse 20, he begins to talk about how, uh, through the end of chapter 5, he talks about how we can be justified by faith. And then chapters 6, 7, and 8, he is addressing how we grow in righteousness, how we grow in our relationship with one another, uh, with God. In chapter 6, he talks about the struggle that we have with sin. Now, he says in verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So biblically, sin is viewed as a master. Paul tells us that when we present ourselves to sin, we become a slave of that sin. And he also tells us that we can present ourselves to God and present ourselves to righteousness and we can become a slave of righteousness. See, the issue is the issue of slavery. And I don't know if, if you know too much about slavery, but um, uh, my opinion of slavery is that slaves can't set themselves free. When, when a person is a slave, when they're in bondage to something, they need someone else to come and set them free. I want you to look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you verses 14 through 24. I'm going to read it from the NIV. But you can follow along in your version. Verse 14 reads, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, 
sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now, notice again, Paul here is saying that the issue is an issue of slavery. That when I desire to do what is right, when I desire to do what is good, I do not find the willpower to carry it out because my will has been enslaved to sin. So even though in my mind and in my heart, I want to do the will of God, I desire to do what I know in the word of God. In my life, I often fail to find the strength to carry those things out. And the things that I know is wrong, the things I don't want to do. Well, you know, <laughs> well, I don't want to do it because I know it's wrong, but in in some way, I want to do it, right? Um, these are the things that I keep on doing. And that is because my sinful nature, my flesh, there are desires that are at war in my flesh with what I know to be right. And the battle rages, and I oftentimes choose my flesh because I'm in bondage to sin. And Paul says, I'm such a wretched person, I need someone else to come and rescue me. Now, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. In other words, no matter how deep you dig and how hard you try, you will never be strong enough to overcome the sin that is lurking in your own heart. Because the truth is, we don't even know the sin that lurks in our, in our own hearts. How many times have you, growing up as a, as a child or as a teenager in your early years, you said, oh, I would never do that, <laughs> only to find yourself later on in life doing the same things that you said you would never do? Not only can we not stop the power of the sin lurking in our own hearts. We don't even know what lurks in our hearts because as God said through Jeremiah, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? You see, the gospel says you don't have to be powerful enough or strong enough to overcome your sinful desires because Jesus on the cross, he did it for you. He died in your place, and he now has sent his spirit to live inside of you to empower you to do his will. So now, you can turn back to James chapter 4. So now, if I were to take my time to go to Romans chapter 8, even though you do sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
There's no threat of hell for those who are in Christ. Now, we all know this, at least from a, a mental uh, um, place. We, we, we recognize that, we understand that, that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, that when we put our faith and our trust in him, there's no condemnation. Right? We, we, we are going to heaven. But we oftentimes struggle here on earth. And yet, Romans chapter 6 says the same, that, that, that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is not just good enough for heaven. It is supposed to give us victory over sin in this life. And yet we struggle, all of us. I think the reason that we struggle is, again, because just as James, as I was alluding to before, when we are struggling, when we have these, these lusts and this greed, these desires that we, that we struggle with, right? When we find that we are in a place of hostility with God because our desires to be friends with the world or the pleasures of the world, we take the gospel and we put it aside and we try to do the work. I recognize, God, that I, I have these, these, this, this lust or this greed or, or I don't love you as much as I can. And so I just, I'm going to dig a little deeper and work even harder. I'm going to read five chapters of the Bible every day. I'm going to give extra money in the offering this week. I'm going to pray just a little bit more th- this time. I'm going I'm to start fasting. I'm going to join a ministry. I'm, I'm going to do all of these things. I'm going to, I'm going to work harder at this thing. Only to find out <laughs> that your flesh is still stronger. Some of us, when we hear these things about total depravity or about our struggle with sin or that we can never overcome, um, fully overcome the power of the flesh. For some of us, that causes discouragement and despair. Um, And rightfully so, just like Paul in Romans chapter 7, right, when he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Um, But for some of us, um, it causes laughter and scorn, some people, when, we, when they hear these things that, excuse me, you can't do anything, you can't work hard enough, they, because our mindset is, you know, I got myself into this, I can get myself out. I want you to turn, keep your hand in James chapter 4, but I want you to look really quickly in Proverbs chapter 3. We all love the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Oh, it is so hard to turn the pages in brand new Bibles. (laughs) (laughs) Proverbs chapter 3. I'm sorry, reading verse 31. He says, do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he who scorns, he who laughs, um, um, surely he scorns the scornful. Right? God scorns those who he laughs at those who laugh at what he says. But out loud, he gives grace to the humble. Those who mock and laugh at what God says, God laughs at them. But he gives grace to the humble. Now, wouldn't it be great if someone in the New Testament, say somewhere around the book of James, would use that same phrase he gives grace to the humble, and give us a little bit of explanation on what that actually means, all right? And so, in case you missed it, James does do that for us. In verse 6, 
Okay. He says, but, right, in opposition to what he says in verses 1, 2, and 3 about the conflict we have with one another, in opposition to the hostility that we can have with God because of our love for the world and sinful pleasure, in, in, in opposition to that, God gives more grace. What, James, what does James mean here? I think that in the context, James is telling us what God does to resolve the conflicts that we have with one another and with himself. James is not concerned about what we can do to resolve our conflicts with one another and what we can do to resolve our conflicts with God. He is concerned about what God is going to do. James recognizes that it is our sensual desires in our hearts that has caused the hostility, but he recognizes that we can do nothing to bridge the gap between ourselves and each other and ourselves and God. James is pleading with us to not be prideful and not be arrogant, thinking that we can fix this ourselves. You can't do it, but God can. That's what he's trying to tell you. You can't do it. Right? If you could fix all of the problems in your relationships, you would have done it already. <laughs> right? right? And then you would be out writing bestsellers and speaking at conferences and packing things out. So you could tell us how to do it because the rest of us need help. <laughs> okay? But, but, but if you could fix the problems in your relationships, you would have done it by now. But you can't. But God can. And how does God do it? He does it by giving us more grace. You all can think back to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says that where sin abounds... Grace abounds much more. See, they are saying the same thing here. They are saying that when we mess things up, God pours out enough grace on us to cover and fix whatever problems we have created. It begins with a change of mindset, recognizing that we cannot do it we have to humble ourselves and come to God to fix it. I want you to turn to two passages in the Old Testament. First, I want you to look in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy. How many people have read the book of Deuteronomy lately? <laughs> it's not just a book that you just pick up and just, I'm just going to read the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> okay. I was laughing because um, uh, over the weekend, um, like on, on Friday nights, like um, Janita and Kelly has a, a group of ladies in our neighborhood that they do Bible studies with. And one person's like, yeah, we, um, some other people that she's with is that we, we, we're studying the book of Deuteronomy. I'm like, how they pick, how they pick Deuteronomy? Like that, it was just interesting to me. I'm like, you know, hey, I'm like, I love stuff like that, you know. Maybe we should have a women's group to study Deuteronomy. <laughs> Is everyone there? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. This passage should be familiar with us. We know that the book of Deuteronomy is the Deutero second Namas law. Moses is about to pass away he's going to pass the baton to Joshua he is giving the nation of Israel their last commands he gives them a, the second law he repeats uh, the the ten commandments and then expounding upon those things for the for the the nation before they enter the promised land and in this passage is what we call the Palestinian covenant the covenant that God is making with the nation of Israel as they go into the land and Moses here is telling them 
what's going to happen. He tells them that God is making a covenant with you. And guess what? You won't be able to keep it. And when you don't keep the covenant, God is going to punish you. He's going to kick you off the land. And then he's going to bring you back to himself. Listen to what he says, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders, yet... And listen to what he says in verse four. He says, yet the Lord has not given you a heart to understand and your eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Now, what is the reason that Moses gives for why the people are in rebellion against God? He says that the reason the people have not turned to the Lord, the reason the people are in rebellion to the Lord is because the Lord has not given them a heart to understand. The Lord has not given them eyes to see. The Lord has not given them ears to hear. They got themselves into sin. But because the Lord did not act to give them understanding and to open their eyes, they continued in their blindness. Look at verse chapter 30. Chapter 30. Verses 1 through 6. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, all of the curses, When these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you what? Return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. According to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, let me take this in reverse order. So it says, the Lord will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and so that you will live. So the Lord is acting here. The Lord is the one working on our hearts so that we can love him and so that we will live. Now, someone may say, though, that that verse comes after the verse that says that you will return to the Lord. And so the passage doesn't say why we return to the Lord. Is it something that the Lord does that causes us to turn our hearts to him? Or does the Lord circumcise our heart and cause us to love him because we turn back to him? I want you to look in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Many of us are familiar with this passage as well. This is uh, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember, uh, there were 450 prophets of Baal, and uh, he challenges them. 
and you know he pours water on his sacrifice and calls down fire from heaven and then he just slaughters all of the uh the the enemies of the lord right listen to verse 37 listen to what elijah says is the reason that he does this listen to the reason for why the people turn back to the Lord. Verse 37, chapter 18, verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that what? You are the Lord and of the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Now I could produce a lot of passages of scripture to show you that the only reason that we, when we turn away from God in sin, the only reason that we turn back to God again is because God is the one working on our hearts to turn us back. Sometimes we think that if we just have the right consequence, right? I don't want to get punished, so I'm going to stop doing this. And that really doesn't work because how many people are walking straight into a brick wall and you tell them, that's bad for you, that's bad for you. They get hurt, there's consequences, it's painful, and yet they keep chasing the same sin. Well, the answer is the reason that they do that is because the Lord has not given them a heart to understand. The Lord has not yet acted to turn their hearts back to him. But those of us who have lived in sin and, and been in sin and then turn to the Lord, we do so because the Lord has poured out his grace on us so that we can see our sin and see how bad it is and see how we are in rebellion to him. And then he turns our hearts back to himself. I could take you to Jeremiah 31 and, and, and we look at the, the new covenant, all right? But uh, let it suffice to say that if we recognize our own lustful desires, if we are convicted by our sin, if we are to experience any victory at all or freedom from the bondage to sin, it will be because God in his mercy pours out his grace on us. Remember what the Bible says, it is the goodness of the Lord that drives us to repentance. This is all that James is trying to communicate to us when he says, but he gives more grace. He's trying to help us to recognize that we don't have the power to fix the problems that are in our lives. And so he's telling us, don't be prideful and don't keep thinking that you can do this yourself. And when God does it, when God turns your heart back to you, when um, back to himself, when you have repented, don't take credit for it. As if you were just somehow good enough to recognize that this is wrong and turn. That's why he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. Those who are prideful in thinking that I can, I can fix this on my own. By my own willpower and my own strength, I can make my life better. God is at war with those type of people. That's what resist means. It means the word is, is used of an army in full battle gear, ready to oppose someone. God is at war with the proud. God is at war with those people who, when they have turned or when they have succeeded in life, they think that they did it themselves. God is at war 
with those type of people. And yet God gives grace to those who are humble. God stands ready to do battle with the proud. God locks himself in battle with those who exalt themselves, but he gives grace to those who are humble. Now, in light of this knowledge, right, so here's the application. What are we supposed to do? If we know that God does battle against those who are proud, and yet he gives grace to the humble, what should our response be? The answer would be to humble ourselves, <laughs> to humble ourselves, right? Okay. Let me give you a list. Here's six things, all taken from these passages of Scripture, right? All taken from these, pa- these next couple of verses, verses 7 down to 10. Number one, submit to God. That's all James says. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. Now, James is, is, is giving you the opposite of someone who is proud. Because someone who is proud, the word here means someone who lifts themselves up, someone who exalts themselves, right? God does battle against that type of person. And yet the word submit means to voluntarily place yourself under someone. So rather than exalting yourself and lifting yourself up, voluntarily place yourself under God. Submit to God, his will, his grace, his word, what he says. Submit to God. Number two, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So now, whereas God resists or does battle against the proud, right? James is telling you, you need to resist and do battle with the devil. Don't fight God. Fight the devil. And when you oppose the devil, he will flee from you. Now, I I don't want to take a lot of time, but what does it mean to fight the devil? Um, Now, many, (laughs) many, many, uh, de- depending on your uh, denomination or things, fighting the devil might mean a, a lot of different things. Okay, um, I have heard all kinds of stuff. You know, um, anything from you know speaking in tongues to people literally actively going out fighting the devil, and <laughs> um, all kinds of things. But listen, I didn't hear people. <laughs> you know, they. Satan, I bind you, right? All kinds of stuff. Okay, look, let me just say, if you had the ability to, to bind Satan, first of all, the Bible says that Satan, Jesus is going to bind Satan and cast him into the, lake of, um, into the bottomless pit. Until then, he's free to come and go as he pleases, okay? Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't understand what people mean when they say, I'm, I'm binding the devil, because usually when they bind the devil, uh, their life either stays the same or gets worse. So usually you, should, you just back off, <laughs> you know. That's not what the Bible say, it means when, when it says resist the devil or do battle with the devil, okay? The, literally the only verse in the Bible that talks about us standing against, other than this, that I'm standing against the devil, is in Ephesians chapter 6, right? where Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God so that, right, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And when you look at this whole armor of God, right, and you match it up with what Paul writes and you match it up with what, what Paul takes us from in Isaiah, Right. He's talking about godly character. When you develop godly character. That is what strengthens you in the spiritual battle to stand against the schemes of the devil. So if you want to resist the devil, if you want to do battle with the devil, don't I bind you, Satan. Get your hands off my children. 
How about, don't waste your time with that, okay? What you need to do is spend time developing the characteristics that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6. So when he says the belt of truth, he's just saying be an honest person, right? The breastplate of righteousness, right? Be a righteous person. Righteousness should be a characteristic of your life. Same thing with all the other ones. And when people throw accusations at you, when the devil comes to tempt you, or when people look down upon you, cause problems at work, the, the people who see that happening, I don't believe that. Doesn't fit his character. That's how you fight spiritual warfare. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Number three, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Many of us have probably memorized Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. See, this is talking about fellowship and communion with God. That when you spend time with God and you spend time in his presence, right, God will come spend time with you. How do we spend time with God? Take that sheet that I gave you of all of the spiritual disciplines and do it, <laughs> okay? All right, I'm going to stop there. Number four, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. John MacArthur points out that this, this phrase, cleanse your hands, is a figure that was used in the book of Isaiah to represent unrepented sin in those who presume to worship God. Okay. So in Isaiah... He is addressing those people who would come into God's presence for worship, and yet they had blood on their hands and sin in their hearts. They were double-minded because they pretended to be in worship of God while at the same time indulging in their sin. James is saying that we are double-minded, that is, that we are claiming to love and honor and worship God while at the same time enjoying our sin. How often do we come to church? How often do we enter the presence of God? How often do we serve in God's ministries with unclean hands and impure hearts? and yet acting like everything is, is okay. James says, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts. Don't be double-minded. How do we do that? James is telling us that what we need to do is set aside our sin so that we can genuinely love and honor and worship God with a whole heart and with integrity. And the way that we go about doing that, he explains in the next couple of verses, is by what? He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I was... You all know that I'm banned from Facebook. I have been banned by members of the church. Just stay on Facebook, Pastor. Just stay on Facebook. You know, so I've been on Twitter. And <laughs> I've been on Twitter. And so on Twitter, I saw that <laughs> on Twitter, I have been watching this argument 
but watching it, I didn't respond. I wanted to respond. I actually was going to respond with this verse, but I was like, I mean, look, you know, they cut me off of Facebook. So I'm, I'm not going to argue with people on Twitter. So there's this argument going on between, I don't know these people. I don't, it, th- these are people from the show The Bachelorette. I don't know if you watched The Bachelorette. I've never seen an episode of The Bachelorette, right? But, but I guess the, 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 the female on The Bachelorette is Hannah Brown. And uh, one of the male contestants was named, is named Luke Parker. And so both of them claim to be Christians. Okay. And so what I'm reading, you know, because I ain't seen it, I don't know the whole story, is that he was trying to get his rose, and he f- believed that because he is a Christian and she is a Christian, that they possess the same opinion on intercourse before marriage. And sadly, he was mistaken. And so when he expressed his views, he just didn't get a rose and got kicked off. Okay. And so like good Christians, we do exactly what we're supposed to do. We go on Twitter <laughs> and argue about it. Okay. So, so he gets kicked off the show. And so now him and her are beefing on Twitter about why he got kicked off the show. And so Some whatever the conversation, I can't find the original, you know, quote. But this is what he says to her. He says, "The difference in how we view sin is seen in the response. I'm weeping at mine, and you're laughing at yours because she publicly came out of, oh, I indulge in this. Nothing is wrong with this. I'm a good Christian. I can keep on doing this, and there's nothing wrong with that. And so you're like, wait a minute, no, no, that's not. You're giving a bad witness to people." by saying you're a, a Christian and, and living in this lifestyle. And so he says, I'm weeping at my sin, and you're laughing at yours. All sin stings. My, her, my heart hurts for both of us. She writes to him, time and time again, Jesus loved and ate with sinners who laughed. And time and time again, he rebuked saints that judged. Where do you fall? Okay, so... Her point is that Jesus loves sinners who sin, and he hated the religious people who were judgmental. Okay, And so he says, there is a difference between eating with sinners who laugh and sinners who laugh at their sin. Sin is the very thing that put Jesus on the cross, and that's no laughing matter. Now, Who's right in this com- in this conversation? <laughs> the truth is that we should weep and lament and mourn over our sins. But how often do we laugh? How many times have you thought about things that you have done in the past and be like, yo, you remember when we used to do this? And be like, yeah, yo. And it's like, just the memory of it just bring back smiles to your face even though you know it was wrong. Why don't when we remember our sin, we remember it with regret? Because the truth is, given the right circumstance, even though we good church-going Christians with the, you know, the big 10-pound Bible, (laughs) given the right circumstances, we would do it again. James says, you should be lamenting over your sin. You should be mourning over your sin. You should be weeping over your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. Because as Luke said, that sin is what put him on the cross. And it's not funny. Often 
we spend too much time daydreaming and remembering how good it was and how fun it was. And at the same time, God is thinking what the author of Hebrews wrote, that you're just taking my son's son's blood and just stomping it under your feet. And if we thought about sin that way, we would not laugh at it. We will weep and lament and mourn. James ends by saying the last thing. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. If we humble yourself, yep, that's number six. Lament and mourn and weep. <laughs> See, y'all ain't serious. Not just lying. <laughs> Not just lying. Listen, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, remember, he starts off, these are like bookends. Right. He says, God resists the proud. He resists those people who exalt themselves in pride and arrogance. He he does battle against those type of people. But he gives grace to those who lay themselves low, which is the word for humble. The type of people who submit to God and resist the devil and draw near to God and cleanse their hands and purifies their hearts and laments and mourns and weeps and humbles themselves, he gives those type of people more grace. Grace to overcome the conflict. Grace to overcome the pleasure and sin in your heart. Grace to overcome any hostility with one another. And if you humble yourself, the Lord will lift you up. Now, the problem, the last thing I want to address in this passage, and I'll take about two minutes, then we're done. Uh, I'm only one minute over. We often think that that's the end of the process. We think that, that once we have a closer relationship with God, we've humbled ourselves, we're in the right place with God, that that's the end. James doesn't end the the, the section there. He starts the section with, you're in conflict with each other. You're in conflict with God. God acts to fix that conflict with with himself, okay? He's like, great, I'm close to God. Let's move on. God says, <clears throat> you didn't address the conflict with them, though. Remember, the Bible closely relates a good relationship with God and a good relationship with people. So that the closer you get to God, as, as John says, the closer you get with one another. The process is not complete until you go back and fix the relationship with the other person. Or as Jesus says, if you come to the altar and realize that there's conflict with your brother, leave your gift, go fix it, and then come back. James says, when God does this work in your heart, when you become a humble person, you won't speak evil of one another. Why do you keep talking bad about people? Talking bad about brother and sister so-and-so. Girl, you see what she wore to church? Why she wear that? Somebody should have told her she need a longer skirt. Like, why? Why you ain't going to tell her? Okay? Stop speaking evil of one another. Because when you speak evil of someone, you are judging your brother or sister. You want to be equal. And when you judge one another and speak evil of one another, you are judging God's law. Particularly where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, 
and the second commandment is equal to that. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're saying God's law is not right. But if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law and not a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you? Who do you think you are to judge others? Now, this, the central thing in all of this is God's grace. Once you recognize the conflict with God and with each other, right, and you see God's grace in the middle, he pours out his grace on you, you are now empowered to have a closer relationship with God, but that should spill over in how you relate to one, we relate to one another. If both of those things don't come true, right? If you don't have a closer relationship with God and then the conflict stops and you get closer to one another, we have to recognize then this part in the middle about submitting to God, resisting the devil, cleansing your hand, that has not taken place yet. Because when it takes place, you will have closer and better relationships with others. Now, you can't change other people, but you don't have to add your part in. As Paul says, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all men. They can be mad. They can be upset. They could gossip. Be like, mm-hmm, I pray for you. I'm going to have a good day. <laughs> and, and like the lady of Six Flags told me, you have a good day too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Again, as I close, what I'm trying to get us to see here in James, what I think that James is trying to communicate to us is faith is supposed to touch every aspect of our lives. You know, no more of this, oh, yeah, I believe God, but it doesn't touch every area, right? Faith is supposed to address the sensual desires of your heart that causes conflict between us, right? Sin, faith is supposed to address how we speak about one another, how we treat one another. And this is all James is trying to show us. Faith is the means that God uses. If you go back to my original definition of faith, okay. Faith is the means that God uses to transform us and causes us to be faithful just like he is. And as James is, is showing here, right, we don't have the ability ourselves to perform this, but he gives us his grace. And if we humble ourselves and we rely on his grace, he will do the work to change us, to change our relationships, change anything that we're going through. But we must learn to depend on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us to come to your presence again. God, I pray that you would work on each one of our hearts and minds. We are giving the message every single day. Messages like people are self-made millionaires or we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And so we begin to think that we can somehow succeed in life or do things on our own without you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. We can't even breathe 
if you don't give us the grace and strength to do so. Help us to know that we are strong enough to get ourselves enslaved to sin, but we are not strong enough to free ourselves from the sin that we love. That can only come from another, namely Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to set aside the gospel as something that can get us into heaven, but help us to see that we need the gospel every single day. Help us to see through the gospel that we are weak and that we can do nothing, but you have done it for us if we would just trust you and rely on your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to humble ourselves in your sight and submit ourselves to you so that by your grace you can keep shaping our hearts even though until we die there will be areas of our hearts that are still affected by sin but you can shape our hearts because you said you will give us a new heart a heart that loves you shape our hearts lord pray that you would keep working to root out those sinful desires that it puts us at odds with one another and puts us at odds with you. I pray, Lord, that as you shape our hearts and, and make us look like you and sound like you and live like you and think like you, that you would be glorified in our lives. Yes, we will fail, but help us to know that when we fail, you will give us more grace if we will just trust in you. We thank you now for all these things. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.